of Habakkuk. Talked about this last week, starting a new book. Why in the world are we doing the book of Habakkuk? Well, this little book, only 56 verses long, asks one of the most important questions that's been asked throughout all of history. Uh, It brings people to the Lord, and sometimes it actually drives people away from the Lord, depending on how they see it. Uh, J.D. Greer, the theologian, says that this book is the book of the big why. Uh, Why does evil exist, and why does God allow it to exist? Uh, We live in an age, uh, we don't disagree on that, that is very evil. There's a lot of evil, more so than, you know, maybe at any other time in our country's history. Certainly, if there is a God, if he is all-powerful, and if he is all-knowing, if he is all-good, then how could evil exist and how can it continue? Uh, Why doesn't God do something about it? And this is the question that a lot of, well, all atheists and agnostics use as the basis for their unbelief. I just can't believe that there is a God, or if there is one that is all good when there's so much evil and hurt and suffering in the world. Uh, This book is called The Oracle, or also The Burden of Habakkuk. Uh, There's a wrestling that takes place between him and God, a conversation, and you know, we just finished the book of Philippians. We were talking about joy and joy in the midst of any circumstance, and especially in trials. And that kind of begs the question that why do we go through all of these trials? Why is there so much brokenness in the world? Now, you would expect for a question like this that for an answer, we'd be going through a huge book of the Bible, like through Isaiah or something like that. But in this little book, we have these conversations between God and the prophet that give us an answer Um, And this book's a little bit different in that God normally initiates the conversation with the prophet. You see that in all of these. But in this book, Habakkuk is taking the question to God. Um, Normally, he has a message that he wants the prophets to take to the people and give them instructions on how to do it. And those instructions were often difficult, sometimes humiliating. I mean, he asked the prophet Isaiah to walk around naked As an example and as a warning to the people, he asked Ezekiel to lay on his side for over a year and to cook his food over dung, right, and play with little models in the dirt, made him look a little crazy. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute, and Jeremiah was told to go bury his underwear behind a rock, and then also to wear yoke bars as he went around prophesying to the people, trying to warn them and come back to God. And the life of a prophet was one of total self-abandonment, not knowing where you were going or what you were going to do day to day. And this would have been really difficult for Habakkuk, who was actually a priest before he became a prophet, similar to his contemporary Jeremiah, who was on the scene at the same time. And a priest's life was very regimented. Uh, It was very orderly. They knew what they were going to do. They knew what their duties were. And we get a clue about this in the final book, uh, in the final verse of this book, which says, to the choir master on my stringed instruments. And he ends the book with worship to the Lord. Uh, This was one of the duties of the priest, right? To lead the people in worship, to bring people into his presence. And it's interesting that Habakkuk's name means one who embraces, because really that's what we're doing when we worship. We're reaching out to embrace and be embraced by the Father and lift him up and glorify him. Also appropriate because at the end of this book, he does just that, embracing God and his truth, even in the midst of evil times. Habakkuk was the last minor prophet to be sent to Judah at a very dark time in their history. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was on the march. They were rebelling against Assyria, and they were headed towards Nineveh. 
Um, radical things were being done to get the people's attention. Uh, multiple prophets were on the scene. Uh, get this. I always think it's interesting. When we read these, we read through the books and we're like, okay, this guy was on the scene and then this guy was on the scene. But during this time, you had Habakkuk, you had Jeremiah, you had Ezekiel, you had Daniel, you had Zephaniah, all of these guys prophesying, warning the people, being God's mouthpiece. Lots of warning trying to get the people back on track because they had actually seen the nation when it was serving the Lord. Uh, one of Judah's greatest kings, King Josiah, who became king at the, at the age of eight. That would have been interesting. I bet he got all the ice cream he wanted. It says that when he was young, he sought the Lord. And when he was 20 years old, they were doing some renovations in the temple. You guys, who likes to watch those renovation shows? Everybody like to watch those renovation shows? And they're fixing up a house and they tear out a wall, right, or something. And they find like a box or something weird inside the wall, right? Does anybody do that? You're weird if you do that. Don't do it. So as they're renovating the temple, they find a copy of the law. Like the scriptures had totally disappeared. And that's how evil this time was. They couldn't even find a copy of the law. And they find one and they take it to Josiah. And everybody is super excited to unroll the scroll and to start reading the scriptures. But when they do, they start to weep. And they start to cry and they start to mourn when they realize how far they had strayed from God's instructions. And so... Josiah leads them back towards the Lord. He purges evil from the land and a revival breaks out. But it's short-lived, unfortunately. There was a revival. There was reformation, but there wasn't regeneration in the people's hearts. Because when Josiah died, the people slipped right back into idolatry. They were going through the motions outwardly, but their hearts were not right before the Lord. Um, And now we have these prophets on the scene calling the people back to true relationship, not just religiosity. But as it was in the days of Noah, as it says in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Habakkuk looks around at all the evil, and to use my wife's favorite expression, what in the actual world? What in the actual world is going on, God? And so that sets the scene a little bit for this book uh, that we're doing an introduction today. Uh, I thought we would just take the question that Habakkuk is asking and wrestle with it a little bit, just as he did. Why does God allow evil to exist? This can be a stumbling point for Christians, let alone people that are not believers. Uh, If God is powerful, if he is all-knowing, if he is all-present, why doesn't he do something? And they bring this question to believers who far too often don't have a response to why this is. And they feel like somehow they need to defend God or they need to stick up for him or get him off the hook in some way because we don't know. And so they might quote something like Deuteronomy 29, 29 that says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Basically, I don't know, God knows, and we try to leave it at that, but That doesn't help. That doesn't help the unbeliever. It doesn't help the Christian either because we're still standing there scratching our heads wondering why in the world is all this happening. So we're going to take kind of a methodical walk through this issue and by the end have an answer that we can accept and joyfully rejoice in. It may not settle the minds of the critics because ultimately what they're after, the bottom line is, they want something that justifies the way that they live. And so if that's discounting God or diminishing him in some way, then they will do that. So very elementary evil exists, and it does so in a very dominating way in our world. It's permeated every corner of the world and every corridor of the human heart. 
but it manifests itself in different ways. And the first one that I'll mention is just a natural evil. Uh, nature is under a curse, and there's an evil that runs through the world. I love it when I hear the kids laughing. That means they're having fun. Um, these are things that we might call calamity, right? Uh, tornadoes, um, tsunamis, um, all ki- hurricanes, all kinds of things, forest fires, um, things that you know, we don't have any explanation for other than Earth's fallen condition. Um, and then, of course, the thing that is most emblematic of sin, death and decay. All of the death, all of the decay, everything that's going on around us that we know inherently isn't supposed to be that way. Uh, natural evil is impersonal, like a lot of the things that we're dealing with right now, sickness. When people say that the coronavirus is evil, they're not uh, overstating it. That is true. All forms of disease are evil. Uh, It's evil at work in the world. Right now, the estimates are that over 5 million people in the world have died due to coronavirus. 5 million. And while that sounds like a big number, consider this. The great influenza of 1918, this would have been the Spanish flu. They called it the Spanish flu, which actually didn't come from Spain. That's weird. But it actually killed the estimates are between 50 million to 100 million people worldwide just due to this flu. Now, even if we take the low number, 50 million, in 24 months, which is what we're closing in on now, two years, 50 million. And the Earth's population then was quite a bit smaller than it is right now. Back in 1918, the world population was 1.8 billion. Now we're pushing 8 billion. So percentage-wise, this is a lot of people. Uh, first case, actually, I thought this was interesting, was at an army base in Fort Riley, Kansas. They had a group of pigs there that had the virus, that had the sickness, passed it on to a soldier. They all got shipped out to Europe and spread the disease all throughout the world. And it mutated so quickly, this thing was so evil, that immune systems could not keep up with the mutations. And it's kind of the opposite of what's happening now. Mostly, it is the you know older populations that are most at risk. The majority of people that died from the Spanish flu were in the 18 to 40-year-old category. Their immune systems were literally killing them because they were trying to keep up and fight off this virus. That is a very specific kind of evil and is still at work today. Even with all the advancements we have in the medical, in the medical world and uh, everything that we've done to safeguard ourselves, this world is still a very dangerous place to live. Very dangerous place to live. Romans 8, 22, we know this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we all groan, not just when we get up in the morning. We're groaning. Our bodies are groaning. Nature is under the influence of evil, and it's groaning. In Mark 4.39, we have this story of Jesus' disciples, and they have been ministering to people by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. And so they all climb in the boat, and they're headed across, and Jesus is sleeping in the front of the boat when a huge storm comes up. Some translations say a squall breaks out. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not that big, all right? And you've got a group of fishermen who have been on the Sea of Galilee their entire lives, and they are freaked out. And they're waking Jesus up and they're saying, listen, don't you care that we're all going to die? And it says that he got up and he rebuked the storm. Now, can I suggest that this was a supernatural storm? Because this is something that the disciples had not seen before on the Sea of Galilee. That's why they're so freaked out. And Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. 
Now, it's interesting because the word there in the Greek for be still is themu, which means muzzled. So Jesus stood up and said, peace, be muzzled. Who cares? Well, in Mark 1, Mark 1, 25, Jesus is casting a demon out of somebody, and the demons are talking, and they're trying to tell people who Jesus is, and he tells them to be muzzled. He says, "Femu," and come out of them. So the same word that Jesus used to muzzle the demons is the same word that he used to muzzle the storm. This was a supernatural storm brought on by the enemy. <clears throat> Nature's under a curse. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know it's under the control right now, under Satan. There's a natural evil. Then there's also what we might call a moral evil. Moral evil, this is what we see around us every single day. All you got to do is turn on the news. It's personal. Uh, it's internal. And this is you know, our spirit man, the sin that we deal with. Uh, this evil dominates all parts of the human race, it's in every human heart, no matter how good we think we are or how good other people look. The Bible says there are none that are righteous, no, not one. Uh, we're all capable of, of horrible things. Uh, the, the saying is true there, but for the grace of God go I. Um, David Crowder has a song, and it is, I think it's the Red Letters song that talks about how, you know, it could have been me, you know, holding the nails and the hammer, um, and that is true, it could have been. Uh, this is the evil that Habakkuk is talking about in the first four verses of this book. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Ever since Adam deferred to Satan in the garden and rebelled against him, uh, we've been under a curse, a curse that separated from us from God and a curse that has left humankind trying to find satisfaction or joy or fulfillment in anything else in creation. And man's been trying to do that with everything imaginable. Uh, it's outlined very clearly in Romans 1. If people say to you that they think that human beings are you know, inherently good. You can point them to Romans 1. Uh, verse 28 says that they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And he's not just talking about the past. He is talking about our culture as well, the human race. And the church, the real church, looks at God and asks the question, God, how can you allow this to continue? Why aren't you doing something? And the world says, what are you talking about? We're just doing what comes naturally. So the third evil is what we might call a supernatural evil. This is an evil that we can't necessarily see, but is just as real. We see the effects of it in the world today. Um, as Christians know, there is a force of demonic beings uh, that are as old as creation. And uh, In Revelations 12, we see that when Satan rebelled against God, he took a third of the heavenly host with him. A third of the angels went with Satan and were thrown down to earth, and they make up the demonic host 
that instigates so much of the evil that we see in the world right now. And they inflict pain and suffering in our lives as they did with Job. Paul told the Corinthian church that he had a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan to keep him humble. In John 12, Satan is called the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And he has a temporary right to rule on this planet. Uh, Their whole goal is to deceive humanity and to fight against God. And they've had a long time to hone uh, their skill set. We read again in, in Romans 1 that people know there's a God, but Satan's job is to deceive men into all kinds of things, even false religions. Uh, some very pagan and some that are very subtle, some that look very close to Christianity. And uh, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness are two of these. Um, some of them are very so subtle. You might hear things uh, that people will say like, well, the God that I believe in or the God I serve. And when people say things like that, they have just created God in their own image. And that is called idolatry. There's only one God, and it's the God of the Bible. Uh, But people don't study the scriptures, so they will say things like this. Uh, People don't think of it as idolatry because they don't have carved images in their house, uh, but it's idolatry nonetheless to make anything of God other than he is in the Bible. Uh, The scriptures are his self-revelation. The only God, one God, three persons of the Trinity, he is sovereign and he is in charge of everything. You might say, Nathan, I thought you just said that Satan has the right to rule on this planet. Well, he may have license to wreak havoc on this planet, but God is still in charge. He's still in charge. Big distinction. God created everything. He controls it. He'll consummate it. Nothing is outside of his control. They just had the climate summit, right, this week. All the world leaders gathered together to talk about climate change. They're all concerned about this world being destroyed by humans. Um, Global warming is going to happen but not the way they think it is, not because of a hole in the ozone. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. There's your global warming right there. <laughs> and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Uh, the earth is going to pass away, but not for environmental reasons. Uh, it'll end when he says it ends. <clears throat> Psalms 115, there's a lot of scripture today. I'm not apologizing for it, but there's just going to be a lot of scripture, so I may not try to write it down. But Psalms 115 states that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. First Chronicles 29.11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, who's about to attack and invade Judah and take over and rule that part of the world, after he had been given over to a depraved mind, after um, God had given him a mind that was debased and he thought he was an animal and he lived out on the fields, after God restored his mind and he had been humbled, he said this, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? This world right now feels like it's out of control, but it's not. God's in control. He is sovereign. If you're having trouble believing that he is sovereign and in control of all things, think about the idea that he's not in control. That would be a terrifying thought, that God is not in control. So what happens when non-believers say that they can't believe in a God that lets bad things happen 
is that Christians feel the need sometimes to defend God or to try to get him off the hook for evil, so to speak. And it doesn't matter how you slice it. It always comes back to God. People say, well, it's Adam and Eve's fault. And they'll say, well, God created Adam and Eve. Well, it's not Adam and Eve's fault. It's Satan's fault. Well, God created the angels. Why did he create them with a free will? Why did he create them even being capable of that? And so it always comes back to God. In Deuteronomy 32, we have what is called the Song of Moses. These are the final words of the man who spoke to God face to face. These are his last words to the nation of Israel. Um, Listen to what he says. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Moses learned this back in Exodus 4 when God called him to go speak to Pharaoh. And he said, listen, I can't go. I have a speech impediment. I stutter. I am not the guy for you. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You might say, Nathan, I don't, I'm not sure I like where this is going. God's not letting himself off the hook for why evil exists. Lamentations 3.37 Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? All throughout Scripture, we are told that there is a purpose for evil in this world. God cannot do evil, right? He cannot look favorably upon evil. He is holy, but he allows it exist for his purpose. He leaves the responsibility for evil existing with himself. A few more scriptures here, just in case you're not convinced. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And Amos 3.6 says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God takes full responsibility. Now, at this point, panic might start to fill the hearts of people that do not believe in God, and maybe even some Christians. People know that evil exists, and most are okay with God existing, but not the thought that he might take responsible that it is existing, that he allows it to exist. So what people try to do is they try to limit God. They try to limit his sovereignty because there has to be some acceptable explanation for why it exists. And they begin to reinvent and diminish God. They'll say things like, well, he can't stop evil. I mean, he would like to, but he just can't. I mean, he's looking down from heaven saying, I don't like it any more than you guys do. That he doesn't have the power to. Or that he does have the power, but he's somehow limited in his knowledge that it's all happening and he's just as surprised as we are. He's just doing the best to keep up because it catches him off guard. There's actually a belief called process theology that God is in process. That he's been God for a long time and he's learning how to be God. And the longer he's God, the better he gets at doing God things. There's nothing like experience, right? That's a scary thought. So it takes him by surprise. I'm not sure what scriptures they're using to back up that argument. So you're telling me that Jesus was hanging on the cross and God was like, wow, I didn't see this coming. I better come up with a plan. 
And so he came up with the idea that as long as he's going to die, I might as well make him a substitute for sinners. No. No other religious text deals with the prophetic, and the Bible has an amazing track record. 100%. So how are we to understand this existence of evil? Some people say, well, that's just the way it is. I mean, if, if good exists, evil has to exist. You know, if there's a plus, there's a minus. If there's a yin, there has to be a yang. It's just there because it has to exist by contrast. But the most popular way that people answer this problem, what keeps them in the dilemma the longest, is the issue of free will. Uh, evil exists because of free will. And you can't have a God that takes away your free will. Can't have a God that takes away our free will. I mean, we're Americans. This is a democracy. Used to be. <laughs> we do not want a God that takes away our free will. But if you grew up in a time or in a country that had a king, you would not struggle so much with the idea of unilateral sovereignty. The American experiment, what we're going through right now in America, does not help our theology all that much. Do you believe that God is so committed to free will that he allowed evil to exist? Like, evil backs in the back door because free will trumps everything else. People have a real problem with a God who violates their free will. To design a God who is limited in knowledge, or design a God who is limited in powers, or to have a God who would rather us do our will than him who do his will, is to design a God that does not belong in the Bible, doesn't exist in the Bible. So God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, evil exists, God wills that it exists in the world. Again, he didn't create it, that would be impossible for him. He is holy, but he willed it to exist. So that leads us to another question, why? Why? Well, it might be some comfort to know that we are not the first ones or the only ones to wrestle with this question. People have been wrestling with it since the beginning of time. Um, you may have heard of something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. This was written in 1646. Some very interesting things to say. It says it, says it very well. So I'm just going to quote it. God, from all eternity, did by most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second-hand causes taken away. Sinfulness proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither can be the author or approver of sin. Then later it says, All that God degrees and providentially brings to pass is all to the praise of his glory. Therefore, the existence of evil, in the end, is to the praise of his glory. And if we answer this question correctly, because there's a real danger if we don't, if we answer this question correctly, it will lead us to heights of worship that we would not reach otherwise. Anything less is a diminished God that does not deserve to be worshipped. It's not worthy of our worship if it's a diminished God that doesn't know the future or is powerless to stop it. The reason he ordains that it exists is for his own glory. So, Here's a simple question. Is God made more glorious or less glorious because sin exists? I would say that it makes him infinitely more glorious because it exists. We praise him not because of what he you know, can provide, but what he has done to overcome evil in the world. How he has confronted it and how he has overcome it. 
Romans 3.5 says, our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. In other words, our sin, our brokenness, our lostness and wretchedness puts the righteousness of God on display. And this is fully manifested on the cross where you see the full righteousness of God displayed as he punishes his holy, innocent, undefiled son for our sins to satisfy necessarily his righteousness. We would never see God's righteousness if we didn't see the cross. And we'd never see the cross if there was no sin. For the sake of demonstrating his righteousness, he allowed sin. Romans 9.22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What if? So what? So in Romans 3.5, we read that our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Then in Romans 5.8, it says that God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And then now here in Romans 9, God demonstrates two things. He demonstrates his wrath and he demonstrates his mercy. Does not God have the right to put his wrath and his mercy on display? God gets glory from his wrath, from his judgment. We wouldn't know what wrath is. And we wouldn't know what mercy was if there were no sin. In Revelation 15, Revelations 15, 2, it says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses. This is the song that he said earlier. The servant of God, whose song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God puts his righteousness on display by the way that he confronts and overcomes and deals with sin. And that becomes the essence, the very essence of heavenly worship. And that's the good news. This evil will not persist forever. Perhaps the best way to understand this is that the greatest evil the world ever did in murdering and crucifying the Son of God was in fact ordained by God himself. Listen to the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 22. I'm sorry, Acts 2. Acts 2.22 Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God in the mighty works and wonders and the signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, planned by God so that he could display his righteousness. All right, just a final passage here. When we talk about pain and suffering and evil in the world, uh, we usually get to Job. Things that we can't quite wrap our heads around. And in Job 38, God finally answers him. And God has some tough talk for Job after he's been asking questions of him and not getting an answer as to why all these things are happening. Job is called a righteous man, and yet he's suffering. Job 38 Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. 
This is divine sarcasm, by the way. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were his bases sunk or what laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And he just goes on and on and on, hit after hit on Job. Job, I don't have to explain myself to you. And he does this for three chapters. Three chapters, God goes on and on. He makes his point quite clearly. And if we skip down to chapter 42, God's done. And Job ventures a response. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the team could come up. That's it. That's the bottom line. In the darkness, in the midst of evil, I see your righteousness on display, your wrath and your mercy. Job said, I had heard of you. I had heard of you, but now I see you. And he worships him for the sovereign God that he is. This is our God. We can say this for certain. We do not want to serve a God where evil controls him. We serve a God who controls what's going on. He's in charge. Think about it. If God wasn't in control of evil, What assurance would we have that it wouldn't rear its head again in heaven? If he didn't control it, how would we know that our hope that is in heaven, that it wouldn't come back again? But he will deal with it very surely. We talked about it at length in Philippians, that our hope and our joy is in heaven. Our address is there. Our God, our Savior is there. That's where we're headed. How could we have joy in the present and hope for the future if there was the possibility that evil and sin could pop up again? It can't, and it won't, and that leads us to praise. Listen to what the last three verses of Habakkuk say. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with my string instruments. We worship him not because of what he gives us, but because of who he is. You might say, Nathan, this sounds like it's going to be a depressing study. (laughs) I think it's relatable to the times that we live in look around and we see so much evil, so much that looks like it's out of control, but it's not out of God's control. Uh, Habakkuk moves from burden to blessing, from worry to worship, from restlessness to rest, from a focus on the problem with God to a focus on the person of God. God turns sighing into singing if we, like Habakkuk, wait on him in prayer, get in his word. God is sovereign. He's in control. He has a purpose for everything he does and everything he allows. And if we sit down and we think about that and how he has made us vessels of mercy, 
He's had mercy on us. That should lead us to worship again. Should lead us to heights of worship. When he said he's made my feet like deer feet, have you seen some of the ledges that these things stand on? Some of them are like that thick that they're standing on. Sometimes we feel like we're standing on about that much of a cliff, but he makes our feet like deer's feet, able to stand, able to trust in him, able to worship him again. Amen. Amen. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong.